Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Henrik is the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and today I am thrilled to welcome our guest, Delia C. Pitts. Delia is the author of the Ross Agency Mysteries, a contemporary noir series including Lost and Found in Harlem and Popper and Prince in Harlem. Murder My Past is the fifth novel in the series. Her short story, The Killer, was selected for inclusion in the Best American Mystery and Suspense 2021 anthology. Congratulations on that. Another story, Midnight Confidential, will be published in the crime fiction anthology Midnight Hour, out this year from Crooked Lane. Delia is a former university administrator and U.S. diplomat. After working as a journalist, she earned a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. She's an active member of Sisters in Crime and Crime Writers of Color. And she and her husband live in central New Jersey, too far from their twin sons in Texas. Welcome to the podcast, Delia. Thank you for including me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have this conversation. And congratulations again on the inclusion in these two great anthologies this year. Thank you. I'm really, I can tell you, I was beyond thrilled with both of those uh, anthology selections. And are you normally, do you write a lot of short stories? Or is this something, you know, have you written them in the past? Or is this something that you're you know, honing your skills. Tell me about short stories in your writing. I would say short stories is, was the way I started getting into crime fiction. In fact, um, I wrote over 60 short stories, uh, in the fan fiction, uh, format, uh, over the, over many years. And, uh, those stories range from flash fiction that were maybe 500 words or less to novel-length um, stories of 10, 12,000, 70,000 words. So I uh, wrote a variety of different kinds of uh, short stories. I wrote everything from p- police procedurals to erotica to uh, character studies to humor, uh, everything. I tried my hand at everything, and I found that the fan fiction community was such a welcoming Mm-hmm. Uh, a location where I could test myself, try myself, and get good feedback. That um, I really look to that as really being the place where I started my uh, professional writing journey. Although, of course, we weren't getting paid for all that fan fiction I was turning out. But so, short stories are a format that I I enjoy. I I feel very comfortable in, and um, it helped me help launch me toward. Uh, the longer formats that I now uh, work in. Wow, that's fascinating. That's a lot of writing. And was there specific, because fan fiction is is based on an existing idea or premise. Was there anything in particular you were driven towards or, or did you just, did you choose depending on the prompt or how did that happen? Yes, no, I worked in the uh, fandom for, 
uh, a TV show uh, called Person of Interest. This was a show that was on CBS. I think it ended about five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of crime, thriller, sci-fi, and suspense, which hit all the right notes for me and uh, had great characters and great writing, actually, itself. And that was very inspiring uh, for me. And so my stories were written in the person of interest universe, but certainly took off in many directions that I imagine the person of interest writers had no clue about. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is great. So the, I, I, we're going to keep talking more about this because what a wonderful way to hone your craft as yes. you're as you're figuring things out and exploring, as you said, exploring other genres and, and formats and things. That's just terrific. And one of the things that uh, I found wonderful about uh, fan fiction are the fans. That is, you um, get feedback that is often almost instantaneous. You post a story onto a website and it's gobbled up by other fans who are interested in the same source material that you are interested in, in this case, person of interest television show. And you quickly begin begin getting uh, feedback from those fans. Now, obviously, people are generally uh, kind and do not flame you unless it's really, really horrible. But you, what you do get and what I did learn was what parts of my story, what elements of my writing could affect the readers so that I learned how to scare a reader. I learned how to turn on the readers. I learned how to make them laugh because they told me about it. They told me that this was happening to them as they read my stories. And that was immensely helpful as I worked on my craft. One of my favorite comments of all time came when um, I, I published some of these, I posted some of these stories serially. So I would, in the case story, it was a nine chapter story. I didn't put it on the website all at once. I posted it every other day for three weeks. And they, this built up a lot of suspense, as it was intended to do. And at one point, one reader wrote me and said at the end of the, the fifth chapter, I'm eating my arm off to the elbow, waiting to find out what happens to them. And I thought, yes, yay, that's what I wanted to do. And it was great to know that I had achieved that. So I found the fan fiction um, environment very, very helpful in uh, in craft, yeah, yes, no, absolutely, and that I'm imagining that there's some readers who would give you useful feedback, and there's some who just weren't weren't as critical. But there must have been maybe a couple who were like, "Oh, this is super! I can't wait till so and so comments," so that because their their comments are helpful. Yes, because you quickly know who are the strong writers in your fandom and who aren't. And it was very helpful to hear from the other strong uh, crafts women, because these were all women, um, in the in the field, and to hear what they had to say, what was working for them. And certainly by silence, you also could pick up what wasn't working. <laughs> and yeah. the, the stories that didn't get very many comments, I learned from those as well. I didn't get the minute little line-by-line critiques, but... I had a sense when a story was not the best <laughs> because now, the fans didn't say a word. 
And how long did you participate with this particular community? Uh, for five years. The five wow. years uh, the show was broadcast. I even ran, uh, a co-ran a uh, fan discussion board, which was at one point, it was an international board of fans who communicated from all over the world. We had probably... 40 different countries represented, over a 1,000 fans participating, and another lady and I were the co-moderators, and I can tell you that was like herding cats, only cats with very vicious tongues sometimes, <laughs> but a lot, of, a lot of fun. Wow, that is so great. And so um, where, well, let's start at the beginning and talk about your writing journey and where it started what moment or or you know a lot of people remember being young and and wanting to you know read and write a book but when did you sort of say to yourself I want to write a book or I want to write a story um yeah. and, and test this out sure I remember writing a story you might call it a pastiche in second grade when I loved the Walter Farley Black Stallion series oh and I read them all, and I tried my hand at writing my own um, original story about an intrepid little girl who had a marvelous uh, horse and who rescued her, him and turned him back into a racehorse. That was second grade, and my mother helped type it up, or did type it up, and we designed a cover, and I made several copies and then sold it at a school fair for two cents, so... <laughs> sold for something. Uh, and so I would say from a very, very early age, I loved writing. I loved reading. And I knew that I, I had something in me that pushed me to create characters of my own. And uh, you have developing your craft through um, the fan fiction world, but would tell me about, you know, how else you sort of developed your craft, because learning how to write a book is more than just writing. I mean, it's writing, yes. you know, no, and absolutely. so how do you... I, well, uh, I would say a number of important influences in my life were, one, um, the academic world. I uh, pursued a PhD in African history at the University of Chicago, and I would say that was my first long-range, large-scale writing effort mm -hmm. was to produce a, a doctoral thesis. You're talking about a book-length piece uh, that's based on original research, but it's 300, 400 pages. Mine was in history. Uh, I did the research in Senegal and the Gambia in West Africa and put it together over a year's worth of, of focused writing. Um, that itself, I think, taught me how to break down a project. In other words, thinking about a project as a 400-page thesis is daunting. It's, it's something that will make you tear your hair out. But if you can think about it in terms of doing a chapter at a time, focused on a little bit of knowledge that you want to convey, and then move it along, there's no plot per se. It's, it's not... It's not fiction, <laughs> but there is a structure to it. There is a, um, a content and a, and a story that you're telling uh, in a way that you hope is compelling to the people who read it. So I think writing a dissertation was indeed an important 
formative uh, part of my becoming a writer. The other element I would say would be my journalism uh, career. I started in high school and then in uh, college as editors of the, those school papers. I worked uh, as a professional at the Chicago Sun-Times, working my up, way up from being a copy boy, and we were called boys in those days, copy boy, uh, to being a, a reporter in the features and the news, uh, the city beat uh, sections of the Sun-Times. That taught me a whole different range of skills. That taught me to write on deadline, that taught me to be a good listener because mm-hmm. the point of obviously any good reporter is to hear what your contact is saying and to record it as accurately as possible and as quickly as possible and then put that back in a meaningful way into a story on deadline and to be economical but to be thorough. And to me, those two elements of economy and completeness are ones that are essential to writing, to any good fiction writing, mm-hmm. whether it's a short story or a novel-length uh, work. Fascinating. But academic writing, and I give you so much credit for your PhD. I, I, I envy you, but I also <laughs> I can't imagine doing that work um, and what that takes. I mean... Wow. Um, and also, you know, being a journalist, those are two different kinds of writing. And I, 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 when I'm talking to you, I'm hearing that you're an explorer who learns what you can from whatever journey you're on and takes it so that you can make it your own. Does that sound accurate? That sounds very accurate. The other thing I would say is that in at one level, all writing is about persuasion because also look at other elements of things that I wrote through my academic career and through my diplomatic career. I wrote countless memoranda of conversations, memoranda of um, meetings, summarizing meetings that I had attended where I had been the note taker. Uh, My job was to as accurately as possible convey what had happened, but to sell a point, a point of view to convince the audience, first of all, to know who my audience is, whether it's people in the United States State Department in Washington to whom I was sending a cable, or whether it was the Vice President for Academic Affairs to whom I was writing my memo, that was my audience. And my first job was to know who's the audience. The second job is to know what did I want that audience to get after finishing reading my piece of writing. And with those two things in mind, then that shaped my writing. It's an act of persuasion. And I think that is precisely what we do as writers of fiction. We have to know who our audience is. We have to know what points we want to bring them to in the course of our writing. And then we have to devise the best methods we can for bringing them where we want them to end up. And I think that kind of writing takes place in a number of different settings, a number of different industries. It's not only in fiction that we do that kind of persuasive writing. Yeah, it's such a great point. It really is. Um, So what what brought you towards crime fiction and and this part of the journey? Um, I've always loved 
crime fiction. Sherlock Holmes was my earliest and still <laughs> strongest love. I found myself, even as in middle school, reading Sherlock Holmes, reading Agatha Christie, but also many of the golden age traditional uh, English authors, Marjorie Allingham, Dorothy L. Sayers. Uh, later, I read P.D. James, um, Niall Marsh. I loved all of these uh, stories in which you have a, um, a well-crafted, character-driven, but crime-focused story. And I was reading those from as early as I could read beyond the uh, picture book stage. <laughs> I was not, strangely enough, a Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys um, fan. I, I never read those, and I never saw myself in any of those. I I went straight for, uh, as I said, Sherlock Holmes and all of his descendants. <laughs> they are indeed his descendants as well. Yes. Um, and so what, uh, is there something about the, the puzzle or the genre or, I mean, obviously I'm a big fan of crime fiction, but, uh, you know, there's, the reader relationship and your audience, I think, in in mysteries and crime fiction is a different relationship than it is in other genres because you're tricking them. Like, you want them to be on the journey with you, but you're also trying to surprise them all the time. Yes. Yeah. I, and that's true. I think that um, as a reader, what I want is to be tricked, as you said, but I also want to be satisfied. Yes. I don't necessarily have to always be satisfied that justice is delivered. That's often the, the outcome, and that's an admirable outcome. But as I have grown in my reading habits and then in my writing habits, I've come to find that I'm more compelled by stories which focus on the investigator who's looking for the truth, whether that truth leads her or leads him to um, justice as narrowly defined by our legal system is one question, but to my mind, this is the only question. And I think um, increasingly we who write crime fiction uh, are facing the, especially if we're writing it in a modern context, a contemporary stories, we are facing the fact that there are communities, many communities, including my own, for which the police are not the first nor the last uh, resort when there are tensions, when there are uh, disturbances or crimes possibly committed. The police are not who is called when those kinds of things arise. And that into that environment steps uh, the private investigator, steps the amateur sleuth uh, who is able to fill a gap uh, for so many of our communities um, for whom the standard procedures of law enforcement simply are inadequate or downright deleterious. That's such a great point and such an, a, a fabulous way of reframing what the modern police procedural or, or traditional, and I'm using air quotes, mystery needs to um, reckon with at this point, right? I mean, yes. it's, it's, it's a dialogue and, and 
and and dealing with that is part of the journey of the author. That's right. And the other thing, I, I was struck by a phrase I read, and I'm sorry, I can't remember often where I read it, but I really liked the phrase and committed it uh, to paper somewhere, which said that when we read a story, we're um, not only interested in how the private eye works the case. We're also interested in how the case works the private eye. Yes. We want to connect. We as readers, I certainly do. And as a writer, as a creator of private eyes, I want to connect with the character that is being explored, that is being peeled back in the pages of the book, peeled back by the case that she's working or he's working and how that interacts with his or her past, mm-hmm. her relationships, her sense of self, her identifying with justice and with injustice. I want to know those aspects of how this case in this story work on that investigator. I, this is a great time for us to talk about your uh, Ross Agency mystery series. Uh, you were one of the panelists in a Joy of Genre panel um, that Sisters in Crime did for BoucherCon. And I love hearing about all of the different genres and the mashups, but can we talk a little bit about your genre or genres and, and how you were drawn to that type of storytelling? The choices that you made when you're developing, you know, your five books in a series is a lot. So <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yes, and counting. Um, I knew that I wanted to focus on an individual. I wanted to focus on, I have to say, a man is the way the voice came to me as I thought about these stories. Um, probably because I was so steeped in traditional um crime fiction and, and the male voice has dominated or not necessarily for the all to the good, but that I think is the way that it came to me, the way I heard it. Um, I was very interested in, as I mentioned earlier, how a community plugs in those gaps in its search for justice. And it struck me that there was room for someone or some set of individuals who answered the little questions, the little tensions that arose in any community. And so I created uh, that agency, the Ross Agency, which is a tiny uh, agency set in Harlem, three people only, and um, of of private investigators. I do admit that I have in my family a woman who is my senior cousin who ran her own security agency in Chicago back in the mm, 60s and 70s, I think. She's long. Uh, But I had a sense. I said, that's something that can be done. Mm -hmm. The police won't do or can't do or uh, people won't call the police to do. So I said, create a different kind of group. I also wanted to challenge many of the classic tropes of private eye fiction. So for my central character, whose name is Rook, uh, I wanted a person who was um, um, not the top or individ- the top individual in his agency. He's in fact number three in that agency. I wanted him to not be wealthy. He doesn't have a car. 
He doesn't have, and I wanted, most importantly, I wanted him not to use a gun. He purposefully chooses uh, not to use a gun. He's an Iraq war veteran who has seen enough of guns. And as he said, I decided that a gun is an invitation to violence and I don't want to dance at that party. So I don't take up a gun. And that, of course, presented me, that choice presented me with lots of ways to um, test my imagination because he gets into violent situations. Now, he does have two colleagues who are expert with guns. And so occasionally I'm able to simply bring in his uh, his uh, crime fighting partners and they shoot up the place and save him. But often he has to rely on wits. He has to rely on his fists. He has to rely on... Um, Outwitting or out or tricking or persuading to get out uh, or fighting his way out of difficult situations. He won't pull a gun because he doesn't uh, believe in that as the way to make his way in the neighborhood. Uh, he does have a feeling that if you make your reputation with a gun in this neighborhood, then you're going to be challenged every day by somebody else with a gun. Interesting. And so it's it's been a very conscious choice, and I've really enjoyed that uh, challenge. I also made uh, Rook a um, character who has a physical disability. He has a, a as a result of a war injury, he walks with a limp. Mm -hmm. um, he is very physically fit, but it, he has a visible um, uh, disability that occasionally catches up with him and, and gives him a different perspective on the people that he works with, the people that he meets. And also, I think it causes people to underestimate him, of course, uh, in ways that work to his advantage uh, in some occasions. Um, he also is of mixed race background. His father is African-American. His mother is Mexican-American. Mm -hmm. um, he was raised in Texas. And so one of the things I wanted to do was in bringing him to Harlem, which is an extremely vibrant, varied and diverse and exciting community. I wanted to get at a number of different kinds of diversity as mm -hmm. through that community. One of the diversities, clearly that some of the diversities have to do with ethnicity, but it has to do with region. He is a, a migrant from Texas. His immediate boss is a migrant of a different generation from South Carolina. He comes from a very different black culture. Mm -hmm. His uh, other partner, uh, who is his, um, the woman in this agency, is a born and bred New Yorker. So she has a different voice, a different point of view. Around them are people who have different immigration statuses, different language backgrounds, different religious traditions. Um, several people have different uh, gender identities and different uh, sexualities. So that this is becomes a part of the complexity of the world that they move through. It's, the stories are not about those diversities. The stories reflect those diversities as the normal part of this vibrant community. Yeah, no, it's, it's I also it's, wanted to get at a community that while it is troubled, certainly by inter by multi-generational poverty, it's not a it's not a community that lacks uh, energy or humor 
or character or drive or, um, or empathy or uh, humility. It is a fully rounded community. It is not a community of trauma. One friend of mine who had read several of the books said, what, Rook has PTSD, doesn't he? And I thought to myself, yes, he does. As a, a veteran of the war, he, some of the things that we see him going through certainly can be attributed to blowback from his war experiences. But he doesn't call himself a trauma victim. He doesn't use the term. He doesn't use the term PTSD. He doesn't use the term disability. He sees himself as we should see himself as an ordinary him as an ordinary guy mm-hmm. this way in the world and uh, suffering setbacks moving forward. I should also mention that one of the challenge ways I also um, played with the trope of the private eye was that, as I said, Rook is not the boss in his agency, and in fact, the he has two bosses. One is uh, the man who founded the agency, Norma Ross, and the second is uh, Brina Ross, Sabrina Ross, who is Norman's daughter and quickly has become Rook's girlfriend. So Rook is number three in that organization with his girlfriend and uh, her father as his bosses. And that, I think, gave an, a fun new twist to power relationships and who makes the decisions. Uh, We often in my stories have him sent off on cases that he isn't necessarily all that interested in, but it's a job. And if he wants to get paid and he wants to bring in the money he should be bringing into the agency, he takes the assignments. He's not a lone wolf or a a lone uh, Uh, investigator in that classic sense. So I love hearing about the the world that you've created, the characters who are in the world and the world itself, which is based on a real place, but you've also, you know, added uh, a lot of elements that come from your imagination. Uh, So what's your writing process like? Do you you know, do you get a German of a, well, I'm not going to, I'm not, how, what's your writing process like? <laughs> you got to give me some <laughs> examples of what I can have. Probably all the examples you were going to come with are true. Um, I conceived this as a series from the beginning. Which I is really helpful. I wanted to have a central character who's, and I saw, thought of the series as having a longest arc a, a series-long arc, that is, a book-long arc, and then several small stories. So short, medium, and long. The shortest stories were, as I mentioned, the individual cases that Rook sometimes gets assigned. Sometimes he has to rescue a cat. Sometimes he has to go break up fights at a bridal shower. So <laughs> things are very small, uh, but he still has to do them because that's his job. The, in any book... The longer arc is the murder mystery, or several murders in some cases, mystery that uh, he's engaged in solving, and that is resolved at the end of the book. But the longest arc is who is Rook? It's pulling back those layers from his character 
and learning more and more about him. We learn in the first few pages of the first chapter of the first book that he is a veteran, as I said, that he has an injury, that he never grew up with a father, that he, um, when we meet him in the first book, he's a, a tramp. He's a bum. He lives in a uh, brothel. He rents a home in a brothel, which has all kinds of irony. Um, and then he finds a job at the uh, detective agency and learns the profession um, of being a private investigator. He's not an, mm -hmm. he's curious and smart, but he's not a private investigator when we first meet him. How did he get to that lowest of trenches where we first met him? Uh, what were the war experiences that brought him down? We know that he has a, 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 he's divorced in an ugly divorce, but we don't know much about that. So we know that there are things in his past, but we don't know a lot about them. And so over the course of these books, uh, we pull back some of, those, uh, some of those layers, all the while solving crimes as we go along. So it's, it's tell the truth time, Delia. Do you know all those layers or, or do you find more layers as you're writing each story? Do you find out something more about him? I, I do know that layers. I, okay. <laughs> I don't know all the details. As I said, in the first book, everything I mentioned to you uh, was in that first chapter. Mm -hmm. The ex-wife, the long lost father, the war injuries, the war buddy uh, that he lost, all that's in the first chapter. But I don't answer any of those questions in the first book. I don't answer them in the second book. And in fact, the fifth book, which is just out, is the one where we finally meet his ex-wife and we learn who she is and we get a sense of their relationship. And well, I'm not giving a spoiler to say, unfortunately, she's the murder victim. So we learn how losing her affects Rook mm -hmm. as he tries to solve her murder. Um, but that's not until the fifth book. So there are elements that we know uh, from the beginning um, and that I knew from the beginning, but that I don't explore in any detail until several books in. Another ongoing arc is the relationship that Rook develops with his boss slash coworker, partner, and girlfriend. Mm -hmm. uh, who is her own sort of a uh, vital um, uh, force in his life. She's got her own set of uh, shortcomings or quirks or limitations, uh, including, to parallel him, she has a missing mother. And uh, when that's one of the bridges that first brings the two of them together, they each have grown up um, missing the opposite gender parent, actually. I mean, the same gender parent, excuse me. Interesting. Rina missing her mother and Rook missing his father. And that's a bridge that in the first book brings them to a different place in their understanding of each other and propels their relationship, perhaps propels it too quickly, one might think, as they look back now. So one thing I also wanted to um, challenge was the trope of the super sexy, super uh, aggressive male um, alpha figure 
mm-hmm. who has every girl that he wants and six more after him. I wanted to challenge all that. So right away, I gave Rook a girlfriend, a steady girlfriend, from whom he is rarely tempted. I mean, he's he's not oblivious to other people around him, but he's been very steady with her. And so I wanted to, but it's sort of boring if there's no ups and downs, ins and outs, tensions in a relation, a personal relationship. And so I've woven into each of these stories changes, alterations, shifts, and expansions in their personal uh, relationship as it grows and matures. So the complexity of your arcs and your stories and these characters, how did you how did you come there? Like, was this a germ of an idea that just built up over time until you were writing or did you just, you know, how did you develop this? I, I wrote very fast in the first year that I started writing this series. And so it's funny now, but the stories that I'm now working on for the fifth book that came out, in February, and the sixth one that I'm working to produce for next uh, year, I've had these stories in certainly not complete form, but in pretty detailed form for four years. Wow. I wrote almost all of this um, series within a year. I wrote Fast and wow. Furious, and then, so I had in my drawer you could say, mm-hmm. several completed uh, manuscripts. Completed but not revised, not polished, but the idea was was there. And that is everything from the mini mysteries to the murder mystery to the way that it fit into the character uh, development arc was there. Now, I'm still, even today I was typing away, revising number six, I'm still honing it, refining it, of course, yeah. shaping it, but I'm not altering the basic plot or the basic long character arc that I started with five years ago. Uh, it's the That's the same. How it becomes refined is the process that I've now been going through and I go through in some detail with um, beta readers, with sensitivity readers uh, in some cases. I have a, an editor who has been absolutely brilliant in terms of, of going back and forth with me uh, at a, at a mi- micro level uh, on uh, word choices and, and voice and so on. So I, it, what I wrote four years ago is not what I'm now looking to publish, but the ideas were there wow. and the direction was there. I'm that's, not inventing that now. Wow, that's great. That's so great. I mean, do you have a, that's the advantage of a series? Yes. Is, is that I'm not having to reinvent, I'm not having to invent a new world. Right, right. In fact, the book that I'm currently working on brought back a character who had been very minor, been sort of fun, but very minor in book two. And as I was searching around for a villain, frankly, I thought, wait a minute, 
I've already got that guy. Why don't I just, I went back and looked at the, uh, the second book and I thought, that's a perfect guy. Let me bring him forward now. He's now two years older and nastier than ever. And let me bring him forward, introduce him to Rook and make him the big baddie in a way that he was just a, he was a side character in book two, but now he's, he's the big baddie. That's great. That's great. What, what's the best piece and what's the worst piece of writing advice you've ever gotten? I think, I don't know that I've gotten bad writing advice, but I would say the best writing advice was certainly to think about the project in small chunks, to not think as I was talking about before, think of this in a daunting uh, 70 or 80,000 word project, but think of this in smaller, doable, bite-sized chunks. I think that was a a very important uh, piece of advice for me. It enabled me to to go forward and to get up every day and write a little bit more. Um, I think that the idea of writing every day is an excellent one. Uh, it's a good advice. I don't, I'm not able to do that <laughs> every day. Life intervenes. Uh, I have other things to do, or sometimes I just don't hear it. I'm not feeling it. And I don't, and I think one piece of advice I have is to forgive myself. If on those days when I don't write up a storm, that's okay. I'll, Pick it up tomorrow. Yeah, that's excellent. Forgive yourself is an excellent yeah. piece of advice for writers. The so other the thing th- that I, someone uh, said to me, and uh, I, I really think is important, is not to celebrate the failures. Celebrate the victories. Celebrate the successes, but not to glorify uh, the failures. That is the rejections. The uh, can spur you. But if you let them go on too long, those rejections become a burden mm-hmm. that is hard to throw off. And you have to set yourself up for success and set yourself up for victory. And you don't do that by um, enjoying, really, and wallowing in uh, defeat and rejection. Other, that's great advice as well. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, when, you know, I talk about writing journeys and I talk about publishing journeys because they are separate journeys. Mm-hmm. You know, your writing journey is yours and with your beta readers and stuff, but your publishing journey, the author hat is a different, uh, is a different set of success or, you know, it's, it's so much of it's out of your control. What surprised you most about your publishing journey? What surprised me was that I would enjoy more than I ever thought I would the marketing side, the publicity side. I had never in a million years, if you had talked to me 10 years ago, you'd said, well, you know, you're going to have to be on social media. (laughs) First of all, I wouldn't have known what that was. And then second of all, I would have said, no, 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 that's not me. But so I've surprised myself with how much I'm interested in the market the book publishing uh, world, um, marketing of 
books, branding, all those kinds of terms are ones that I actually enjoy learning more about. I, I find myself reading almost daily an article or two about the business side of publishing because I'm finding it increasingly fascinating. Uh, probably in another life, I would have loved to have been a publisher, have my own imprint and publish other people's books. Maybe I still will. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Well, it's good to both love the business side, but understand that it's a business as well. Yes. Um, and, and you need to sort of separate ego out of the, the business side sometimes because the decisions are just the best for the book. But, you know, it's right. not a, yeah. Right. But you also learn, uh, or at least I feel like I've learned that I, um, that a key element is trusting myself and seeking the best people to work with and, if I can do that, then I can go far. And I enjoy that aspect. I enjoy thinking about um, cover design, for example. I would never have known that I would like it, but I enjoy that. In fact, just before uh, I, we came together, I was going to go outside and take pictures of this thunderstorm that's raging because one of my ideas for the next cover is boiling, uh, thundering, massive black clouds. And I had an example of them outside my house and I wanted to take some photographs to use as inspiration for an inspiration board that I would then give to a professional. I'm not an artist, so I would give to the professional cover designer that I would hire um, to inspire her with my ideas mm -hmm. for the cover that she would, she would then uh, develop. But I found that fun. I, it was something I wouldn't have known that I enjoyed, but I do enjoy. That's so great. It's, it's well, it shows too. I mean, you just you're loving this process and you're loving this journey, um, which is great. Um, so, Sisters in Crime, you are an active member of Sisters in Crime and Crime Writers of Color, and we can talk about both organizations. But can you talk about the importance of community? in this journey, um, in what so many people think is a solitary journey, but you, you need people <laughs> to, to help you on it. Yes, certainly. I think you said the, the key uh, irony of the writing business, writing profession, is that it's a solitary occupation, but it thrives in community. And I think that I found Sisters in Crime to be a wonderful place to connect with people who are thinking about things that interest me um, uh, and I, who are interesting to share their journeys with, to learn. I learn from them, particularly through some of the um, services that Sisters in Crimes provide. I'm still, still working with cards that I wrote down during Jess Lurie's fabulous um, writing uh, craft or plotting uh, her, seminar that she gave back, was it in January? Yeah, in January, her Editing Hacks webinar. Oh, it's in the goodness. webinar library for members. Yes. I still, as I said, I have note cards and I consult them still every day uh, and think a lot about uh, that and other uh, seminars that Sisters in Crime has put together. So I know it's very specific for me that there have been um, a lot of those kinds of tools that I've taken away from uh, Sisters in Crime 
um, fellow travelers. <laughs> Indeed, fellow travelers. Um, well, this has been a great conversation. What, you know, in wrapping up, what, what advice would you give your younger self? I would have done this all earlier. <laughs> I would have found a way to do it uh, earlier. Um, but I may not have been able to do it earlier. For instance, crime writers of color didn't exist 15 years ago or 20 right. years ago. Um, I would not have been able to find that kind of a support uh, network 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, the isolation would have been real uh, if I had started earlier. So I'm not sure that the advice I'd give myself would have been something I could have uh, followed through. Also, there are so many examples now of excellent, excellent writing, crime writing, particularly, I must say, by uh, crime writers of color that is so inspiring. I'm not sure I would have been as inspired uh, 15, 20 years ago uh, as I am now. Yeah, the writers were there, but the opportunities weren't so that we didn't we didn't have as rich um, a, a reading opportunity as we have now, and we're all the better for it. I agree. I yeah. agree. It is. I think it's a golden age of um, crime writing in so many ways. It is. We're expanding the field and what it means to be a crime writer. We're expanding it every day. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for this great conversation. Thank you for inviting me. I so much enjoyed it. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.